Welcome to Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer arise in thy sight as incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick. This is episode three. Today we're going to be dealing with common myth understandings of the Catholic faith. Um, before we get into the subject at hand, just want to do a little plug for Havana Palace, my go-to cigar shop, Windsor, Ontario, here on Church Road. You could go see Caesar and Eli. Tonight I'm smoking a Cuban house blend, a $4 stick. For the price, you certainly can't beat it. A very fine cigar indeed. And to accompany that, I have a nice coffee with heavy whipping cream. So that's what is on tonight's menu. Uh, getting my dad on. No adult beverage this evening, but that's okay. So, as far as the subject goes, you know, coming from a Protestant background and a Muslim background, um, I was fed so many lies about the Catholic Church, her origins, her practices, her beliefs, and you know, when things are repeated often enough, they tend to be just taken for granted, you know. People just end up believing them and retelling them, rehashing them without thinking critically or doing any research. And these things that we're going to talk about today have become so commonplace. But they're not just simple misunderstandings. In a lot of in a lot of ways, they're actually akin to really egregious myths or fables that have no place in reality whatsoever. I mean, yeah, granted you have, you know, there's a there's a degree in everything, right? There's a spectrum. But some of these things range from, you know, maybe sincere misunderstandings to outright crazy harebrained conspiracies. I can't obviously cover them all in a single episode, but I will intend um, with the help of some from some feedback from my wife and a couple other friends, um, to sort of put my feelers out there and and tackle um, some of the main ones that either they or I myself have heard and even repeated to others uh, along the spiritual journey. What I'd like to start with is the idea that. Catholicism as a religion is not, well, it's not Christian at all. In fact, it is paganism. And you get this a lot from some of the more extreme fundamentalist Protestant articulations of Christianity and denominations. Um, some of the more mainstream ones will concede that Catholics are Christians at least, but uh, some of these more fundamentalist types will say, no, Catholicism is not Christian at all. In fact, it's just simply a, a rehashing of old Babylonian or Egyptian mystery religion or 
something of this sort, and it's not only non-Christian, it's actually demonic. And I have to admit that there was time when I got so into these conspiracies, I was actually of the mindset, believe it or not, and again, see, you, you learn these things from other people. Oftentimes, you don't do critical research, just because in today's information age, we all want instant gratification and information at the push of a button. And a lot of times, it's just easier to repeat what you hear and move on to the next thing. And so in my case, I heard and ate up with a spoon because I trusted um, this person to whom I was listening. I trusted him with some other areas of my life namely diet and nutrition, that I thought, well, he, he must be on to something about religion, too, and spirituality, and what he says about the Catholic Church must have some merit. Uh, lo and behold, I was taught that the Catholic Church, uh, yeah, you hear the horror of Babylon thing all the time. I mean, that's, that's old hat, right? That's no surprise, but he, he went a little bit deeper. And again, this is something that I parroted and began adopting and eventually believed with the, every fiber of my my being that the god of catholicism that is worshiped is actually satan and babies are sacrificed and satanic sacrifices in the catacombs underneath the vatican to lucifer uh, the catholic church is also responsible for genetically modified foods uh, vaccine conspiracies, um, they're going to fake the return of Christ at the end of time with some kind of alien light show. I mean, you name it, right? I mean, just total, total insanity. And of course, pitted against this is the idea that, well, true Christianity uh, which isn't even a religion, it's a relationship, is based on you and how the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible to you. And that's the only thing that you need to be concerned yourself, concerning yourself with. Don't, don't even bother with church. Church is bad. Organized religion is bad. Um, rituals are bad. And he, he quoted uh, a passage of scripture to me when... God is chastising his people in the Old Testament. Seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed to fit the context of the verses, but God is basically telling the Israelites, I hate your I hate your feasts and I hate your fasts and everything else. So he seems to be condemning uh, tradition and ritual and worship. But, you know, at the time I didn't realize this, but the, the context was... If you're going to be offering right worship to me, don't just be doing the externals, but have a have a pure heart, uh, free the prisoner, uh, you know, care for the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan. Then offer me sacrifice. So it's not an either or, but a both and. But your internal disposition has to match what you're doing on the outside. So that was. You know, the first thing, when I, when I, my first encounter with Catholicism really wasn't 
Catholicism per se. It's what I'd heard about Catholicism and it being pagan from somebody else. And I just kind of bought that hook, line, and sinker, and I ran with it right all the way to the end zone. But, you know, some of the more... That's, a, that's an example of a very extreme position. Obviously, right? But you get a more nuanced position that says, well, Catholics can be, or in some cases are Christians, but Catholicism as a religion is kind of a mixture of, yeah, Christianity, but it's got some pagan stuff thrown in there. You know, this whole idea of the cult of the saints and praying to saints and praying to Mary and priesthood. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus do away with the priesthood? Doesn't the book of Hebrews expressly condemn the priesthood when it's talking about Jesus and the new covenant versus the Aaronite Levitical priesthood? who not only have to offer sacrifice for uh, their own sins, but the sins of the people as well. And they offer the bulls of blood and goats, which cannot take away sin. So what's all this about priesthood? Isn't that just putting a barrier up between man and God, a way in which the Catholic Church can um, exert a strong arm of control over its faithful and believers? And, you know, let's, let's not mention, of course, the Pope, who is par excellence, you know, the supreme priest, Pontifus Maximus, or Pontifex Maximus, and he is, he's the whole head of the pyramid, right? So this is, this whole thing is about control. It's about setting up barriers and roadblocks between the people and God so that rather than the people depending on and going to God and having a direct relationship with God that can actually transform their life, they have to go through these, jump through these man-made hoops of man-made tradition and go through these fallen men who are fallen men like themselves to get to God and tell them what God authorizes and doesn't authorize, say, uh, what God says and doesn't say, and put you in bondage and spiritual bondage versus, hey, I could just go to, directly to God myself. And that's the true, true liberation. And that's what Catholicism wants to keep you from. So they're hoping that you'll never come to that glorious saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abandon all the barnacles, tear off the shackles, and just go straight to God with the Bible. Nobody to interpret the Bible for you, but the Holy Spirit ministering to your heart. Now there's a whole lot in what I just said. That's a whole can of worms. But you see how a lot of these themes are, they're not isolated. They kind of work in tandem. I mean, the whole idea of Catholicism being pagan, for example, what do you have in a lot of the pagan religions. Well, you have rites of initiation, you have mysteries, you have sacred rituals, you also have um, priests or intermediaries that act as go-betweens or oracles between the gods and the people. 
So it seems, at least at first glance, that this would be a reasonable assumption to make that, you know, because Catholicism came from the Middle East and the Mediterranean, it kind of makes sense that they would have co-opted or adopted surrounding sort of pagan beliefs and practices and allowed them to sort of get in bed with, so to say, pure monotheistic Christianity. And eventually the animal that was given birth to was this sort of Greco-Roman Mediterranean mystery religion mixed with Catholicism. And just like in the pagan religions, you know, you have all these, uh, what used to be gods or deities are now replaced by angels and saints. The fertility goddess is Mary. And um, that's pretty much it. And the Pope, you know, he holds the keys. He's at the top of the pyramid. So not only are these things pagan and ungodly, but by their very systematic structure, they're putting a barrier and they're putting blinders on you as they stand between you and your relationship to the one true God. Now, I'm sure brothers and sisters who have spent time in evangelical fundamentalist Christian circles, uh, much of this will, I'm sure, ring in your ears and, and have elements of you know truth to it. You could, you could look back and you could say, ah, once I was there. You know, this, this is like second nature to us. But rather than, you know, just me rehashing these myths, I actually want to address some of them. Um, another, another one that's connected to this is the idea of tradition, like I mentioned already. You know, doesn't God in the Bible condemn the Israelites for their traditions? Doesn't Christ, who is God, doesn't he go to the Pharisees, who were the heralds of authentic Jewish tradition, quote-unquote, and condemn them? Doesn't he want, doesn't the Father look for worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth, not the way of the Pharisees, i.e. with their rituals and their hoop-jumping? At first glance, it would seem so. So that's kind of what I wanted to focus on, is addressing the issue of, is Catholicism pagan? Is it paganism mixed with Christianity? Or is it just simply Christianity? And not only that, but the oldest articulation of Christianity. Secondly, I wanted to look at are these things that we Catholics do and believe in terms of the communion of saints, the role of Mary, uh, having a pope, having a priesthood, Do these things take away from having a personal, real, dynamic, fruitful relationship with God? And thirdly, 
the role of the Holy Spirit in Catholicism? We often hear, you know, the phrase being born again of the Holy Ghost or being filled with the Holy Ghost or having, you know, being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Well, Catholics neglect the Holy Spirit, don't they? Or Catholicism as a religion has really no role for the Holy Spirit. Is that true? So let's discuss some of these things. But I will take a sip of my delicious coffee first. All right, so is Catholicism pagan? It's a great question. If you watch movies like Zeitgeist, you know, and, and you hear these sort of tirades against Christianity, you'll often hear that, well, Christianity is nothing, nothing other than repackaged pagan myths, such as Horus, Isis and Osiris and Egypt, Krishna, you know, the, the myth of a dying and rising savior god, you have the Mithra religion in the Mediterranean, things like this. So isn't Christianity just based off of that? And isn't this Jesus fellow, you know, wasn't he just a simple Jewish rabbi and an itinerant prophet who was later, because Constantine wanted to unite the Roman Empire, didn't he just use existing pagan beliefs and kind of plant Jesus in there, plant Mary in there, to give paganism a new face, but it's really the same old, same old? That's what you often hear. But I propose this. Instead of, and I've seen Christian apologists do this, they get into the minutia and they say, well, uh, Jesus isn't like Krishna because Krishna wasn't born of a virgin. And they try to weasel out of these accusations like that by kind of going tit for tat and saying, well, he, he's not exactly like Buddha or he's not exactly like Krishna. He's got this on Krishna or that on Buddha or, you know, that on Horus or, or whatever the case may be. But you don't have to do this. And this is one of the reasons why I love Catholicism so much. Is because our, our basic ethos is that grace, the life of God, deifies or makes divine by grace nature what is natural, what is already there. Why is this important? Well, you see, because God elected the nation of Israel and set them apart. There's no doubt about that. And it is in the nation of Israel that Christ, he comes forth 
out of this nation, sent to all the nations, but from the stock of Israel. But you see, if Christ is the hope of all the nations, Israel specifically and especially in a special way, but if Christ is the hope of all the nations and his mother gave birth to him and he founded the church, would we not expect to see seeds, types, shadows, and symbols of Christ, his Blessed Mother, and the Holy Catholic Church, not only in the nation of Israel's history, cult, temple, liturgy, scriptures, but also every single nation and culture and philosophy and religion since time immemorial, if Christ is indeed the hope of all the nations? Yes, Israel specifically, but it's not either or. It's not Israel or all the nations. It's both and. So that is why we can look at ancient Egypt and we see something of a divine triad, which can be a symbol for the Trinity, or a dying and rising Savior God representing the equinox and summer solstice in another tradition well before the incarnation of Christ but see rather than wince at it or cringe or try to weasel our way out of it and say well no it's not exactly like that therefore it has nothing to do with that rather than take that approach we can joyfully say as Catholics amen because that's an example of the seeds of the word of God, who is Christ, the Logos, being sown in all these cultures in preparation for when the full flowering would come in and through the nation of Israel, which would eventually spread throughout all the world to all the nations, to the Gentiles. So rather than try to weasel our way out of these accusations of paganism, if we use the philosophy of the church, which we can find um, very early starting in the, well, you know, Paul does it himself in the New Testament when he's on Mars Hill preaching in Athens. And he says, I see, I see that you guys are very religious, but you also have, you know, you have all these idols and statues, but I see here is an altar to the unknown God. And it is this, it is this one in whom we live, move and have our being. So Paul was able to recognize that the pagan Greeks had truth and they knew the ultimate ground of reality. And he says, and this is the one who is now revealing himself to you in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. So he was able to use what they had and already knew, raise it up with divine knowledge and truth, and bring them to the fullness of faith. And so we can do and we should do this exact thing when we encounter these charges of paganism. Don't try to weasel out of it. Don't be sorry for it. Don't play a tit for tat and say, well, it's not exactly like this or that thing. Rather say, amen, because Christ is the hope of the nations. And he see, you know, the, the seeds of the word are sown throughout all the nations. We would only, it's not accidental. We would only expect, it, it would only be fitting 
for these things to be evident in these other cultures, religions, philosophies, and paths. And ultimately, the goal of Christ, the goal of the church, is to deify, sanctify, make holy, make godlike all cultures through the church and through the ministry of the church, through Christ in and through his church, and to restore, to sanctify all of creation, the whole created order with divine life. So he doesn't destroy what is there, but rather he raises it up. And this is what he does with so-called paganism. And another thing I'll mention uh, just briefly on this, on this particular subject is the idea that the veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints in general is a pagan practice that had been introduced or grafted into an otherwise pure Jewish monotheism. Nothing could be further than the truth on this. You know, it's interesting. If you just do a survey of the Psalms, David is speaking, King David. And I never really noticed this before when I didn't have Catholic lenses on. I kind of would just pass over stuff like this. But there's passages where David speaks to the angels directly and says, Oh, you host of heaven, praise God. So, wait, I thought we were only supposed to talk directly to God, or if we're praying, we're only supposed to address God directly. But here's King David actually talking to angels who are part of, quote-unquote, the church, the church triumphant in heaven. But he's talking to them, and he's conversing with them and telling them how to praise God. Now, for our Protestant brothers and sisters, they wouldn't accept the book of Sirach as scripture. But it is interesting to note that if you don't, accept it as sacred scripture, at the very least you would concede that the contents of the book of Sirach, as some of the early Protestant reformers thought, might not have been scripture on par with the rest of scripture, but they were useful for historical information and for at least showing what the Jews at the time of the intertestamental period believed and thought. So we should at least grant the book of Sirach that much if we're not sure of its canonical status. Toward the end of the book of Sirach, it's interesting, the author is talking to, extolling the praises of the prophet Elijah, who went up in the whirlwind. And if you read that chapter... I want to say it's around the upper 40s. If you read the chapter about Elijah, the author of the book, who is a human being, is talking to him. And he's saying things like, you know, he's basically extolling his glory, saying how you went up in the whirlwind. 
this kind of language. But here we have encoded in the very words of Scripture, and if something is in Scripture, it's obviously mandated by divine inspiration, so therefore it would be quote-unquote okay to, to practice or believe. But the author of this book of Scripture is actually talking to Elijah, who's not God, and he's praising him. So, like I said, whether or not you accept, uh, accept Sirach as scripture, at least know that this is significant for the fact that it shows in the intertestamental period that this is what Jews were, this is how they were talking and thinking theologically and religiously. Now, the veneration of Mary, we're going to cover this in depth in future episodes. Um, I've got an upcoming episode. This will be in the somewhat distant future, probably around the fall. But I'm going to have uh, the illustrious Margaret Barker, the foundress of the study of temple theology, on. And she's going to talk to us about the theology of the first temple and how it relates to Christian origins. And we're going to discuss the Great Lady of the Temple, whose fulfillment comes in the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm also going to be discussing this with uh, Rachel Fulton Brown in a future episode, author of Mary and the Art of Prayer, who draws heavily on Barker, as I do, to make these kind of connections, which are indispensable, and I cannot say this enough, indispensable when we're talking about Catholic Christian origins and whether or not they are quote-unquote excuse me, pagan imports into an otherwise pristine Jewish religion, or they're actually part and parcel of the ancient faith of Israel. Now, the veneration of the Mother of God and the saints. The saints, in general, as I mentioned in episode two with my wife, we make the distinction between adoration or worship in the strict sense, which is to offer sacrifice, um, which is the biblical view of worship, adoration. And then there's veneration, there's honor, there's reverence, right? We, we honor, we reverence the saints. Um, when we pray to them, we ask for their intercession, and we understand that it is only in and through the divine will and divine power that they are able to hear, do, see, or respond to anything in the first place only according to the will of God. And it's not because God needs them. It's because in God's condescending love, he wants to involve his creatures, his image, in the work of redemption of not only man, but the creation as a whole. And if you recall the fall of the angels. Now, the angels were, in Deuteronomy, I think it's around 32-ish, are called uh, B'nei Elohim, the sons of God. And an angel, or a messenger, is put in charge of each of the nations to guide, protect, and teach that nation by God's power, according to God's plan. 
in harmony. As we know, with the fall of the angels, this is why scripture says the gods of the nations are demons, because the ones originally, the unfallen angels, tasked with guarding the nations and teaching them had fallen, and so they taught the members of the nations wicked ways, false knowledge. And this is what led to the downfall of nations. Now in the church, the restored sons of God take the place of the fallen angels, and they are now tasks, tasked with ruling and governing the nations with the power and bringing the presence of God. So you see a reversal there. And the amazing thing about this restored community of sons and daughters of God is the Holy Spirit unites all of the members. Just as we have one head, Jesus Christ, we are all members of his body, and the head and the members are knit together in love by the Holy Spirit. So it's like, in a, in a mystical way, if Jesus and the church, the head and the body, are one quote-unquote thing, the soul, the Holy Spirit is the soul that animates the entire quote-unquote person, the whole Christ, head and body together, joined together, knit together, breathing the breath of life that is the Holy Spirit and filling the entire cosmos. And so, as St. Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither life nor death. So, those who have gone before us in glory are still part of the church, still part of the restored order of the sons and daughters of God, but they've just, they've transitioned and they have the beatific vision. And so they have less limitations than what we have on earth. And because they participate in the beatific vision, they've reached a much fuller degree of deification than we have here. And they're not bound by sin and they're not bound by fleshly bodies. And so they can, through the power and being of God, hear and respond to requests, take requests to God and God even fulfill his will on earth through them, through their ministry. So whatever ministry they had or charism they had on earth will be now even more powerful, more glorified in heaven, because as I said before, grace builds on nature. So whatever they were, whatever charism they had on the earth, it will even be elevated more in heaven, and they'll be that much more able to assist the pilgrim church, the church militant, fighting the good fight on earth. And we also have the souls, the holy souls in purgatory who are being purified from their attachment to sin through the work of Christ, being made fit for the kingdom, and so are assisted by our prayers and our works of mercy, our sacrifices joined to Christ and uh, the prayers and merits of the saints in heaven. And it's all connected, all centered on the, tri the triune God and the triune life of God and the redemptive, most e efficacious work of Jesus Christ. It is only in and through that that any of this is even possible, and God doesn't need all of these sort of ways and avenues to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but again, he wants to include his creation, just as man was central to 
the fall of creation because man fell. All of creation fell because man and creation are mirrors of each other in macro and microcosm. So he uses redeemed man to, as he pulls man up through Christ, he also pulls up the rest of creation, the macrocosm in man done in Christ to the glory of God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of this is thoroughly Trinitarian, thoroughly Christocentric. And that would, you know, bring me to my next point just briefly. Again, this is just a teaser because I, I got whole episodes coming on this. But the veneration of Mary, I mean, yes, you had the queen mother in Judah who uh, was not the king's wife, but the king's mother. And she sat at his right hand, interceding for the people of Israel. Um, we see this in the Old Testament with the with the king and the and the queen mother. And uh, there was one penitent who once once uh, interceded uh, with the wife of Solomon, and and he knew this. He said uh, he he asked her he he gave a request and said the the king will not refuse his mother. So this was common knowledge and common practice in the Davidic kingdom. But, and that's just on an earthly level. You know, but uh, Mary, she is the new queen mother in the new Davidic kingdom, the church, with Jesus as the Davidic king. And so as the queen mother in the Old Testament uh, interceded on behalf of the people of God to the king, so Mary intercedes for us the church, and the world, and brings our needs, our sorrows, our sufferings. And she knows them well because she watched her son die on the cross. You know, St. Simeon, when he gave the prophecy, he said, a sword will pierce your own soul also. So as Christ is being pierced and killed on the cross, she mystically is dying with her son. So she understands our sorrows and our sufferings, just as she understands her sons. And so she's able to, with a mother's heart, intercede uh, to her son, our King Jesus, on our behalf. So she's like the queen mother times infinity. But there's also a theology behind the great lady, the queen mother. It's not simply a matter of, well, she's just an earthly queen and she had a role of intercession. Um, but Marian veneration and theology, Mariology, in the Catholic Church actually has its roots in the first temple, not only in the person of the Queen Mother, but also her heavenly counterpart, which was understood to be the heavenly mother of the king. Now her role was essentially... In the beginning with God at creation, when we can read about this in Proverbs 8, that is Lady Wisdom, says that she was with God at the, at the beginning of creation. She was his master workman. And what she did, her job was to weave. She was the weaver of the bonds of creation. And we know that the Father created all things through the Son. So, what Lady Wisdom's job, quote-unquote, job description was, was 
to weave garments of creation so that the glory of God could now be seen and interacted with on a created level. Because as we know, God is unapproachable, unseen. But as Lady Wisdom made garments of glory like uh, one making robes for a priest and the priest puts them on, now the priest is, is visible. So in the same way, in the beginning, the Logos, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, prior to his incarnation or his in incarnated state, Lady Wisdom is beside him we weaving garments through created matter so that his glory could enter creation and still be seen, still be manifested, uh, still be experienced by creation, but as through a veil. And this is the role of Lady Wisdom in the beginning. And we see that, and that's on the macrocosmic universal level, but on a microcosmic level, we see Mary does the same thing as the icon of Lady Wisdom, the microcosm of Lady Wisdom. In her womb, she weaves garments, priestly garments for the Logos, for the second person of the Trinity to become manifested to the world in the robe, in the priestly garment of matter so that God could be with his creation, seen, experienced, touched, but as through a veil. So what Lady Wisdom did in the beginning, veiling the glory of the Logos so that the Logos could quote-unquote enter creation without becoming less than what he is, so too Lady Wisdom in the person of Mary at the end of time does that very same thing where she robes the Logos in garments of flesh, created matter, so that he could enter his creation without becoming less than he is, i.e. God. He is the God-man. And in the first temple, we see this theology. See, Lady Wisdom makes God present in human form. If you're if you want to take one one thing away from the question of what does Lady Wisdom do, she makes God presence, present in human form. She did this in the at the beginning of creation. She did it in the Old Testament in the first temple. And she did it perfectly, fully in the person of Jesus Christ. But in the period of the first temple, when Israel was ruled by the high priests who were also kings, They would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sit on the seat the two cher between the two cherubim. They would sit on the mercy seat and there would be anointing oil. They would be marked on the forehead in the shape of a diagonal cross, the letter Tav. Anointing oil would be put over their eyes so that they could, they could see with the sight of wisdom and be resurrected like one of the holy ones. They would have a scepter in their right hand that budded almond flowers. This was the symbol of the lady. There would be the menorah, the tree of life, another symbol for Lady Wisdom. 
kept alight by the holy oil, the same oil that was put over their eyes and marked on their forehead. And it was understood that this lady gave birth to her royal son in the Holy of Holies. And when the ceremony was complete, the congregation would bow before the king, who wasn't just a king, wasn't just a monarch or a priest, but as king and priest, he was also the living manifest image of God in the temple. And one of his titles was Emmanuel, God with us. And how, how was he made Emmanuel? Because the lady, Lady Wisdom, in the Holy of Holies, made him present to creation in the temple so that the people could be with him and worship him. God, Yahweh, was present in the, in the person of his cult statue, in the person of the priest king, who was made present by the lady. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is made present by the Lady Mary in the Holy of Holies in her womb. When he comes out from the sanctuary, he is visible that we may see him. He is our Emmanuel and worship him. So let me ask you a question. Is that pagan? Is that Greco-Roman Diana fertility god worship? No. That's as Jewish, as Israelite, as you can get. In fact, one of the problems with the second temple was that all of the symbols were removed. The menorah, the true menorah was gone. The bread of the presence was gone. That's another topic, but you can see where I'm going with the bread of the presence, the Eucharist, right? Um, the holy oil of anointing was gone. All the symbols of the lady, the things that were used to make God present in the person of the priest king, well, guess what? If the lady is gone from the temple, who's going to make God present? Not possible, right? And, and the second temple is the very era when what? The prophets are lamenting that the glory of God has left the temple. God no longer dwells there. Well, if you don't have the lady, you don't have the lady making God present in the person of the priest king, you have an empty temple. It's a vestige of its former self. So this theology of the lady making the Lord present, her son, goes back to the first temple. And this is, why we, this is why we venerate her. This is why we love her. Because without her, we, we wouldn't have the Lord. You know, quite simply put, Mary is indispensably important. And not just as a historical figure, but this theology goes all the way back to Israel's most ancient manifestation of religion, most ancient temple, and most ancient mode of worship with its cult and symbols. And the lady was a central part. Why? Not because she, she was some separate goddess, but she was always intertwined with making the Lord, the high priest, her son, 
present to creation so creation could encounter him and he could be with them and dwell with them in their midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Right? That's what Jesus would say. So without the lady, none of this is possible. And that's why we venerate and honor Mary the way we do. Not because she's some pagan goddess who was imported from another side of the world or another part of the world onto Judaism. It's because she is part and parcel of the most ancient form of quote-unquote Judaism. And so was the idea of uh, a manifest God in human form in the temple. So these are all things that are very significant. Is Catholicism pagan? No. Does it raise up paganism towards in preparation for the gospel? Yes, it does. Does praying to the saints take away from a relationship with God? Absolutely not. Is the veneration of Mary uh, in the saints, is it some pagan practice foreign to Judaism? No, it goes back to the most ancient strata of religion of the Bible and the most ancient temple and its rituals and its symbols. So hopefully this has helped you, I pray, uh, any good is from God, any mistakes are from me, for which I do apologize. Uh, this has been episode three of Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation with your host, Dustin Quick. Let my prayer arise in thy sight as incense. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you all.